Hey, hey, CNFers, if you're looking to get into shape, someone to hold you accountable, you hire a personal trader. Right, Joel? Likewise, if your writing needs a spotter, consider letting me help you out. If you're working on a book, an essay, a query, or a book proposal, and you're ready to level up, email me at brendan at brendanomero.com, and we'll start a dialogue. I'd be honored to help you get where you want to go. Call for submissions for issue four of the magazine, audio magazine. That's right. Codes. Codes to live by. Mantras. Mantras. Personal beliefs. Rules. Oppressive or liberating. I love people who are so principled they live by a code. Captain Fantastic. Great movie. Power to the people. Stick it to the man. And even the Mandalorian. This is the way. Give me your best 2,000 word or fewer essays about codes. Email podcast at gmail.com with code in the subject line. Simultaneous submissions are fine, I get it. But if you have your piece accepted by another publication or are holding out for a more mm, prestigious publication, let me know ASAP so I don't read and edit any unnecessary essays because I do give notes to rejected essays too. What a guy. Deadline is October 31st. This is the way. There's a person popular in the entrepreneurial community. His name's Derek Sivers. Oh, I love him. Yeah, he's wonderful. I'll never forget hearing him speak and saying, people just want to be surprised and delighted. If you can introduce <laughs> a little bit of surprise or delight, that's all. And it doesn't take much. Oh, and this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories, this non-award-nominated podcast. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? Jane Friedman's on the show. You know Jane Friedman. She's a publishing maven. She's probably done more for writing education than just about anyone on the internet. She pretty much has a school. Yeah, like the School of Chocolate. Love that show. But uh, Chef Amari, my God, what a wizard. Uh, anyway, Jane's webinars and online classes foster so much skill and community. I recently took one of her webinars uh, in association with Creative Nonfiction Magazine. Yeah, those guys, we're like kids and cousins. Uh, it was about book proposals, uh, but for this podcast, I know we're a nonfiction crew, and I know I probably should have spoken to Jane about the book proposals thing. Uh, my bad. Uh, we talked about Better Call Saul. I'm sorry, CNFers. I'm sorry talk a lot about online education, newsletters, building author platform, the perils of putting too much attention on social media, and simply doing work, work that builds platforms. Work is what builds platforms. She's at Jane Friedman on Twitter. You can go to her website to see a smattering of unbelievable offerings, really. So incredible. Uh, yeah, great price too. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna pay something, but you're gonna get more than you pay for, and it's it's great stuff. JaneFriedman.com. I can't I can't recommend them enough. I want to remind you though, keep the conversation going on Twitter at CNFPod and at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. You can also support the podcast by becoming a paid member at Patreon.com/slash CNFPod. As I say, this show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. Members get transcripts. Chances to ask questions to future guests, special pods in the work. Also, I put out my um, like query tracker spreadsheet, which was really popular among the patrons, as well as most recently uh, a notebook indexing system. 
Uh, also, a Google sheet that I share with patrons. Uh, but if you if you don't have the scratch to support the show, I understand. Free ways to support the show. You can leave a kind review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Written reviews for our little podcast that could go so far, man, toward validating this show for the wayward CNF. And we got a new one. This one from ABT41253, titled, A Fascinating Peek into an Editor's Toolbox. As a writer, I was fascinated to learn about the inner workings of an editor's mind. It ranged from the abstract to the very concrete, and always helpful. Like every episode, there was laughter and lightness, and I came away inspired and educated. Thank you. And I will say thank you. Great stuff. Hey, and if you're out there and you're feeling shy, by all means, it's okay. Fight that shyness, man. Leave a review. I will give you the maddest of props. Mad props. Right here. I'll share it with the CNF and audience. You deserve that. And it means the world. Validates the enterprise, as I already said. All right. One last thing. Be sure. You're heading over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for my up to 11 rage against the algorithm CNF and monthly newsletter, book recommendations, book raffles, most often a link to a CNF and happy hour. Didn't do one in April, might do one in May. We'll see. First of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. All right. Well, enough is enough. It's time to welcome Jane back to the show, back from episode 102 to now 311. Wow. This is what we do, CNFers. Start with the, uh, something that's a little uh, maybe even just tangential or maybe not even related to writing or publishing is, uh, you know, what do you find yourself doing uh, to un- unplug from, you know, being submerged in publishing and writing all the time? What are those things that you that, that you turn to to unplug? <laughs> this is going to reveal some maybe embarrassing habits. Uh <laughs> I would say the number one thing I do to unplug isn't actually unplugging. Uh, I play an app-based game called Carcassonne. It's actually, it came about as a board game first, but the app is beautiful. It's so well done. And so you can play a game of Carcassonne in probably less than 10 minutes. Okay. So that's a really great stress relief. And then other than that, the evenings, late, late evenings are for... Watching an episode of some episodic, some show that has been preferably going on for many seasons. Um, right now, my husband and I are re-watching, actually, uh, Better Call Saul, because we've forgotten uh, most of it. And, yep. and, and I believe the last season is, is dropping or has dropped in any event. Those two things together. Yeah, I'm watching Better Call Saul, the season five that just dropped on Netflix now. They're airing the last season now, so it's like I have to try to figure out a way to keep any of those spoilers going until it comes back to Netflix in like a right. year. So. <laughs> but it, the show is, um, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm four episodes into season five, and um, it, it it is... It's great because I had recently spoken with uh, Leah Flickinger, who's an editor for like Runner's World magazine and Popular Mechanics, and she and I got to talking about tension. 
and how often in nonfiction pieces and certainly pitches, tension is often lacking. And it's sometimes hard to come by because you can't manufacture it. So you have to try to seek it out in the reporting, which can be really hard. And as I'm watching Better Call Saul, it's even the most seemingly mundane scene is loaded with yeah. tension. Yeah. And it's it, a, it's like such a lesson, right? It's it's a brilliantly written show. And of course the acting Bob Odenkirk is phenomenal. I mean that character is I mean I think it's in my mind it's surpassed Breaking Bad. Um and you wouldn't even have to watch that series necessarily to get a lot out of Better Call Saul, although it helps. It it just goes to show you know what what can be accomplished when you like drill into character and then I don't know how it is that they pull pull off the thing, but you always just find yourself just unsettled. You're like, are they going to make the right decision or the wrong decision? They're usually going to make the wrong decision. And are they going to uh, make the choice that is for the betterment of their own, uh, I don't know, the the people around them? But they they seem to be pulled and the, the gravity of their past decisions is just too much to surpass. And then you're just... And you're waiting for that release, and sometimes that release is comedy, and other times it can be some some action. And that, but you just never know. And it's just like I'm like, how are they doing this? It, <laughs> it, it is inc- an incredible masterclass in in making you want to keep watching and keep reading if you're a writer. Yeah, yeah. the The moral gray areas in that show are are so masterful. I think that's part of what makes it so compelling. Yeah, like the so much. Especially with like uh, you know Kim and Jimmy, so much can be unsaid. Like mm-hmm. they have a lot of dialogueless scenes, and yes. it's just their faces, and it's incredible. Like it's just an incredible testament to their skill in chemistry to convey so much without saying anything. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the fifth season is like, but you know, I've always been just stunned at how how weighty that relationship is. Yet you have almost none of the backstory of like how it started and was built they just you know they just like you have to infer constantly what must have passed between these two people but i think it's perfect yeah and when i was talking to matt bell whose recent book refused to be done just came out it's a really great writing book on writing and um he talks about how a lot of a lot of stories and books can be weighed down in backstory mm-hmm. and uh, especially true in nonfiction because you do a lot of reporting and you're like I gotta throw on all this cool stuff I found out about the characters you know childhood mm-hmm. when, and it's only like the most germane nuggets that are you know, that are worth keeping but you, you make a great point about Better Call Saul it's just like you know there's something there but they don't weigh down the narrative with excessive backstory filling in every hole of their history you just know there's something there and we yeah. just feel it yeah yeah absolutely now, what's what's um, what's been great about uh, the, the well, the last last few years, kind of kind of like charting what you've been up to. Uh, uh, you've really leaned into the webinar and online classes thing. I think more in the last few years. So, what was the genesis of that, even before COVID? Well, it goes all the way back to Writer's Digest when I was the publisher, and we had an online education arm that was primarily long-term, like eight-week, 12-week, like even 16-week classes, which carried a pretty high price point. You know, we're talking hundreds, sometimes more than $1,000. And so that excludes a lot of people from, from the education And so we launched a webinar series at Writer's Digest. Um, We had no idea 
you know, what would happen. It was just one of those, one of those th- the ideas that came up during a corporate innovation summit. <laughs> Most of the <laughs> ideas, you know, that come out of those are not practical or they're, they're you know, they're done for the benefit of executives. Uh, but this actually was, was a great idea because it was a lower price point. It was quick hits. Um, and it, originally the staff did them. We didn't have our authors or columnists doing them. And it, it quickly just became a, a really brilliant way to tackle single issues, like single problems that, that people have, um, giving them, you know, that, that, that little secret or nudge or inspiration they need to get over the next hump. So that, you know, that debuted, I think, in 2008 or 2009. And then when I left Writer's Digest in 2010, I continued teaching. Um, you know, webinars in that period, I don't, for, I don't, for those who may remember, like it was considered a really kind of stodgy, corporate, not terribly exciting format. You know, this was long before Zoom. There were only one or two tools available, like GoToWebinar, I think was the one. We were oh, using. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. There's nobody on webcam, you know, it's, you know, some people dialed in by phone. So it was like a teleseminar for a lot of people. Um, but it was successful despite, you know, some of these drawbacks. So anyway, you know, through the 2010s, I kept teaching for Writer's Digest. I started doing more with other organizations. And then in 2019, serendipitously, as like, cause the pandemic was the perfect time to be in this. And so we were getting things established before that hit. My husband who used to work at the same company, he lost his job because the company went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with his help, I was finally able to launch my own program of classes. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it alone because the customer service burden is pretty significant. Um, but yeah, it's been so well received from the start. And my goal is not so dissimilar from the Writer's Digest days where I'm trying to provide affordable education on demand for people who, you know, otherwise wouldn't have access to it. Yeah. And I I like particularly how um, when I was just reading up about more of the ethos behind what you were doing and, you know, and usually the price point by and large is right around $25. And Mm -hmm. there's this it, you know, it is more affordable, but it doesn't feel like we're giving this thing away for free only for someone to upsell you with like, I don't know, just what it <laughs> right. fill in the blank. Yes. And it's just like, this is it. This is this is it. There's no other ulterior motive other than you're going to pay for this. You're going to get more than you pay for. And, you know, you're going to be able to run with it for as for as long as you want because you like give get the materials and stuff. Right. Right. That's the hope. Um, we try to provide a lot of value for people. And I learn, I mean, personally, I learn so much from the interactions during the class because now the webinar tools are so much better than they were 10 years ago. And there's lots of good active chat conversations and the questions coming in. It's really, you know, for anyone in the writing and publishing community, it just, it, it gets your finger on the pulse of what people care about, what the challenges are right now, which are of course always shifting. Um, the pandemic changes what people are concerned about. Um, tre- you can see new trends coming and going <laughs> based on webinar chats. So I really enjoy it. Yeah. And uh, what's, I think, important to underscore, too, is, uh, and uh, this goes for, I think, a lot of writers who want to make a living writing, is that they, they tend to just kind of haphazardly go about 
cobbling together things and 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 don't and I'm guilty of this too, even to this very day of not really setting up a, a plan or a business plan of sorts. So when you were starting, you know, really doubling down on this type of webinar content, what was the the infrastructure that you had in place and the plan you had in place before you really started to execute it on Moss? Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, I've had a website for many years now, and that's yeah. the it's. A lot of it is just about making sure I have sufficient visitors and visibility on the website um, through blog content and through other resources. And, you know, people see the classes if they end up on my website. And then, you know, people register and pay through the website. And then I've, I already had a lot of experience with Zoom prior to the pandemic. So I already understood, you know, how to integrate all of the all of the administrative pieces on the website with Zoom, it's really frankly not that complicated. But people can be intimidated um, by some of the moving pieces, or just having a website can be intimidating for folks. Yeah. But I've been really I've been gratified to see that you know it may seem strange to welcome competitors, but I think we all offer something different. But I've you know like Creative Nonfiction Magazine has gotten into the webinar space in a in a pretty serious way since the pandemic. And I've seen other writing organizations really get in and do unique and wonderful things. And I think it's all of this, I think has been good for the community. Yeah. There's a, it's as things bifurcate like that, you have to sort of figure out what, what it is that makes, that makes you stand out, but also drill down on what Seth Godin might call the smallest viable audience. (laughs) You just like, you know, it, I th- it's antithetical to think that in order to go big, you really have to go small and narrow. So yes. in a sense, like you're kind of on the leading edge of it. But how have you you know, cultivated that sense of going narrow to, to grow big? I mean, my original niche was business. So the business of writing and publishing. And a lot of my email newsletter lists are built from people interested in that information. And I, I should also mention, you know, as far as my business planning and strategy, a lot of it is email driven and, and I have ways to reach people that aren't dependent on social media, which helps yeah. tremendously. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that helps with registrations and marketing. Um, but to your question of, of the niche, Fortunately, I know what I'm good at, which is the business practicalities. I'm not so hot on craft and technique. I'm not a, you know, I don't produce much creative work on my own that's outside of industry facing material, um, like personal essays or novels or poetry. So I have guests who do that. And I have so many connections from my time at Writer's Digest to bring in guests. So, you know, I started off with the people I really knew knew well, I knew their topics reasonably well. Um, and then I started with business topics and then started getting more into the craft and technique topics by bringing in the people that I knew and trusted. What do you find that most people you know, want to learn about? And this could just be, you know, what's basically what's your most popular offering? <laughs> <laughs> the memoir classes are probably the most popular by far. Now that might be influenced somewhat just by the instructors that I'm working with who are really well known in that community. But even, <laughs> even when I offer classes from novelists, uh, things that are really obviously about fiction, the memoirists still show up because they're just hoping for that 
that light switch moment, you know, where, because there is obviously a lot of crossover in craft and technique between creative nonfiction and fiction writing. Yeah, for so sure. So it's, um, it's always this funny balance, you know, when you get all of the memoirists infiltrating every class and asking the questions, how does this apply to me? <laughs> um, it's like, okay, I've like actually started putting notes in the class descriptions. Memoirists are welcome, but we will be focused on fiction. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you uh i mean i should I, I should kind of know too but i think i would send this to you because i i just you know people are just so enamored with uh memoir and writing writing memoir and hoping <laughs> to catch gold and strike lightning and yes. write the next wild or what fill mm-hmm. in the blank the liars club uh what do you think the lore is for for memoir that st- is enduring you know to this very day I mean, I, I can only speak to what I've seen since I've entered the business, which is you have these m- memoirs that really strike a chord for people. Like it's maybe going all the way back to Angela's Ashes by Frank McCord. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you've got Eat, Pray, Love and Wild. And now you've got, um, is it uh, Glennon, Glennon Doyle? And so you have these just larger than life people who sometimes start off doing things in what looks like a very accessible way, like on a blog or in a newsletter. And people think, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. You know, um, was, I can't remember what blog Glennon Doyle had, but I think that's where her background was as far as, you know, building her platform and then going on to writing and publishing those books. Um, so you just have these people who serve as role models and are very inspiring and they often encourage people, you know, you, your story is important. You deserve to be heard. Um, and everyone, I think that's absolutely true. The, the issue that comes into play is that not every story is going to attract a commercial publisher's interest right. um, for lots of different reasons, but usually, you know, they want to see platform. They want to see a certain amount of sales. Um, but I think that, uh, the other issue is perhaps generational in that we've you've got the baby boomers who now perhaps have the time inclination and they're reflecting on what the bulk of their lives have meant and and they want to write and tell those stories yeah and uh yeah and speaking of platform it's a, it's one of those things where uh, the, to me and I think you'd agree like the best possible platform is like as a solid email list you know it's permission driven mm-hmm. it's a uh, algorithmic algorithmically agnostic it it doesn't it doesn't uh rely on uh anyone else changing a line of code and it's uh, and again permission is the biggest thing um it's one of those things it's a you know best time to have you know planted trees 20 years ago the next time (laughs) next best time is now or today um so when it comes to email newsletter to email platform you know what are what are some good ideas that you know people can glom onto and start that what is really a slow process, but a good process of building that degree of platform? I think the number one thing to come into it with is a commitment to actually doing it on a schedule. Yeah. And I speak from personal experience, not just as someone who's like, I don't know, a marketer on the hill, like looking down. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I was inconsistent for five or six years with my own list And, you know, I didn't particularly value it. Thus, the people receiving my messages didn't particularly value what I was sending. What a revelation, you know. (laughs) It wasn't until I decided I want 
this to be meaningful for not just me, but for the people who are receiving it. I don't want them to mistake it as spam or something that I hastily, you know, sent off. Now that said, I think a lot of people make too much of the writing burden involved in an email newsletter. People, you know, get twisted in knots about what do I say? What do I put in it? And it's, it doesn't have to be so like, something highly original and, uh, you know, award-winning, it can simply be like a consumption list. And by that, I mean, you know, what have you enjoyed lately? Kind of like the first question you might've, you started with about what are you using to de-stress or, you know, unplug, talk about the things that bring you joy in your life or the books you've read, the TV you've watched. And just, it only takes a couple sentences and then like four or five little things that you've enjoyed and you have a newsletter. It doesn't have to be anything more elegant than that. So short, no one also will complain that your newsletter was too short. So, you know, 300 words max, you can even, I've seen people get away with two sentence email newsletters and it's fine. I think it's just, you have to have the commitment and then you have to think about, what you can sustain and so that you're not feeling like, oh my God, the newsletter's coming up again in another two weeks and I don't know what I'm going to write about. You just have to figure out what's some method of identifying what your content will be before you sit down to write. I keep like a, a running list of like interesting things I ran across so that when I do sit down to write, I've got like a little, basically a cheat sheet of what the newsletter should include. Yeah, I do that too. I in my bullet journal, I have a whole collection of like for that month's newsletter, whatever, and I just do a monthly. It's a fir- first of the month, and um, yeah, so I just have a collection of stuff, whether it be, you know, cool articles I run across, you know, some book recommendations because that's part of it, and it's just like okay, make a little list, and that way, there, when it comes time to put it together, which I do about a day or two ahead of the uh, when I send it out. It, it, I'm not panicking and scrambling and everything. And I, right. mine is just an up, I call it like a up to 11 newsletter kind mm-hmm. of piggybacking on spinal tap. And it's yeah. just like 11 cool things that I, that I come across. And I've just, over the years too, I've just really honed. I'm like, how can I make this valuable for the person opening the newsletter right. and not be, not be self gratifying, not yeah. be spammy and, right. and all that. Like, these are cool things that I think you'll really like. And yes. I think that's important, too, because a lot of people might be like, all right, people want to just know what's, what's going on in my life. And like, what's well, all well and good. But what people are getting bombarded with emails. So it's like, how can you make it valuable for them? Yes, there, there's <clears throat> a um, there's a person popular in the entrepreneurial community. His name's Derek Sivers. Oh, I love him. Yeah, he's wonderful. I never forget hearing him speak and saying, People just want to be surprised and delighted. If you can introduce a little bit of surprise or delight, that's all. And it doesn't take much. Yeah. And uh, another thing, too, is uh, what what annoys me is that often because I'm in touch with a lot of authors, obviously, for this show. And invariably, every now and again, I just randomly I I get their newsletter. I'm like, <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't sign up for this. And like, yeah. I, I love you. I, I admire your work. I didn't know you had a newsletter uh, just because I just didn't know. But all of a sudden I'm starting to get their thing. And I know how, what of a, what a gut punch it is to get unsubscribes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, well, I'm not going to unsubscribe, but I'm also kind of pissed. You put me on your newsletter list without <laughs> telling me. I'm like, this, it's like, 
that that's a big no-no <laughs> it is and it happens all the time yeah which makes people like people who send them or starting to send them they think that makes it okay um yeah <laughs> i actually have an email filter set up for when that happens to me and you're exactly right like i don't want to unsubscribe because i feel like this is going to be insulting yeah um, so <laughs> i put them on a filter that just puts it straight into the trash <laughs> Like I don't even have to think about it. That's a good idea. Uh, and regarding newsletters too, uh, you know, uh, you know how uh, what what might you suggest to somebody out there who's looking to maybe hone a kind of uh, a point of view that is in service of an audience that isn't self gratifying. That uh, I think that gets to the point of what you were saying or what Derek's ever said about being surprised and delighted. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's trial and error involved too. But what might you suggest to someone looking to hone that point of view? I think it helps to observe yourself in social settings. I think writers are really Mm -hmm. great at this, by the way, because we tend to have a lot of anxiety in social situations or are already (laughs) studying group dynamics. Um, (laughs) And just think about how does your POV differ from other people in the room or what are the things that with the privacy of your closest friend, you're, you, you get angry about it and you go on the real vent or, you know, the, the rage, which you would never actually put online. And just think about what defines the things that really drive you in those conversations, the emotional drive. How can you tap into that for your newsletter? Um, now, I'm not saying you should go rage in your newsletter or anything like that. I'm just looking for where the fire is coming from because... You want that sort of fire in, you know, if you want to attract readers or keep them with you, they straight information works up to a point, but there's the greatest newsletters, newsletters have some sort of personal connection there and a point of view that the people come to you looking for that angle. Like there are newsletter writers, you know, something will happen in the news it could be the literary community. It could be politics. doesn't really matter. And I know that I'm a newsletter writer is doing their job when I think about, I can't wait till that person addresses this issue when they send out their next issue, because like it helps, it helps me figure out how I think about something to know how they're thinking about it. So that's, that's what I would be considering if you're kind of at sea in terms of your POV. What are some of your favorite newsletters out there that you really look forward to? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, a lot of them are business oriented. I don't know that they would be particularly exciting for a majority of your listeners. But someone I've been reading for for decades now is Michael Cater in Publishers Lunch. So this is, you know, an industry newsletter about publishing. What's so interesting about his newsletter is that it is more or less information and reporting, but you love it when he allows his own POV to slip in with a zinger, um, <laughs> which happens when there's a hot button issue or some court, some sort of development. You've, once you've been reading him for a while, you can see through his selection of quotes and his one or two sentences, they speak volumes about his attitude towards the current situation or, or problem or news item. Um, let's see. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking through the, 
the many sub stacks that I, <laughs> that I subscribe to. Um, there's a agent sub stack agents and books by Kate McKean that I think would be of interest to people listening. She's her, she has such a strong voice. I admire her voice in the newsletter. It's I, I often wish that I could be like her in terms of voice, but it's not like, I can't, emulate you can't emulate someone else right you can maybe mimic and figure out your way through but she's just i don't know there's something about her that there are lots of exclamation points and a little bit of stream of consciousness at times and you just feel like you're getting a real authentic take on something from someone in the business um she doesn't hold back um and it's somewhat it's also true of uh anna Sproul Latimer, another agent. I think her newsletter is called Glow in the Dark. Um, although that's both of these have free versions and paid versions, or you you know you get cut off at a certain point uh, in the reading. But yeah, both of those have very strong voices. That if people want to see what we mean by voice, read those. Read those two in particular. And uh, what struck me um, a few a few weeks ago, um, I think you had paired with uh, Ashley Renard to do like kind of a social media Instagram uh, mm-hmm. kind of class. And I, I have her book behind me. I need to read it because uh, she's supposed to be on the show. Um, I met her at uh, Hippocamp uh, the twenty the summer 2021. 20, mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I know she's, she's big, big, big on Instagram and swears by it. And uh, I, I noticed that at Hippocamp too, a lot of people were really flocking to that a lot Mm -hmm. to learn about that which is all well and good and i think it's a it's a good skill to have but what what i was thinking too is like a lot of people's energies in my opinion here were kind of misdirected it i don't think it i think it's good to learn the certain skills of certain social media platforms but to win at social media at the expense of learning craft learning how to broadcast a message when you don't have anything to say is antithetical to even building a platform because if you get good at Instagram and you have nothing to say it's like you're just telling people you have nothing to say <laughs> and so it's like you gotta I think you, you gotta build a better foundation before you can then leverage those things that can of course change at a moment's tweak of code so I, how do you wrestle with the the social media aspect of it you know making sure that you're good enough uh, that you have work good enough worth promoting mm-hmm. and, you know and leveraging through social media I think there are, I'll I'll go to the extremes here and ignore nuance for a moment. (laughs) Uh, So there's one extreme where people have written or published little or nothing. They want to publish a book of some kind, usually. Usually the book isn't finished or maybe it's on submission. In any event, let's say they have no platform, but they hear that you need to be active on social media. And as you say, they, but they haven't clarified a message. They don't, they're not necessarily known for any work. They go to Instagram. It could be something else. And they start posting videos maybe about their submission process or their writing or, you know, something random. And that's the sort of activity where I think, yeah, I mean, you're probably not hurting yourself, but what could you be doing with that time? Um, so it's exactly the problem you've identified if you really have no message. The other extreme is, which is, is the better position to be in, but I don't think, I don't think many people have this aptitude, 
which is being able to use social media as basically a writing and publishing platform that's of value and of platform building potential and gathers you an audience. Now, I think Ashley Renard is an interesting example of this. She did have a message. That message was really strong and clear through, I believe, both Instagram and TikTok. And it helps that she was focused on teaching people something or helping them learn something. In this case, it was uh, about keeping monogamy hot, I think was her main focus for her social media building prior to her memoir coming out, which ties into that issue. Um, the memoir is called Swing, so that gives you an idea of, <laughs> uh, of the premise. So I think she's an example of someone who's able to use social as an as a dynamic publishing tool that builds an audience before the book comes out. It's just that so few writers in my experience are able to make, to able to bridge that or make that leap because they see it as like this marketing tool or as selling out, or they're not comfortable with whatever the social media platform demands of them, like being on camera and being, or using video editing tools. Um, I mean, when I started using Twitter myself, I approached it as a really interesting publishing tool and I didn't have any, and I did have information to share and I had, and it made me visible to the greater publishing community, which was super helpful for my career. So, you know, I really like, again, I'm, I'm describing two extremes. Most people fall somewhere in the middle, but usually if I'm teaching on social media, like a, a webinar or a class, I try to help people see the potential and using it to publish bits of work early to, in Austin Cleon's words, show your work. He has a whole book about it yeah, and the value of that. Book. Rather than seeing what you put on social as somehow like lesser than or, you know, this, you know, every, every time something becomes the burden or something you have to do, it kind of spoils the endeavor. So that's that's what I'm trying to avoid for folks, taking away the obligation and bringing back the fun and, and feeling of play, which can, I admit, be hard in a toxic social media environment. <laughs> oh, so. for sure. Well, I know I, I, I was guilty of this and definitely fell into the trap of it. Like when right because I had joined Twitter in 2009 and it was. You know, and I don't have a Titanic following by any stretch. Following. It sounds gross to even say that. And it's, uh, I remember just getting into, I don't know, a little game, like trying to hack my way to a platform. You know, and and I think that's the problem a lot of people face. It wasn't until I just eschewed, almost eschewed it all together and started doing things like the podcast, which is more in direct service uh, of people. And then, then it just, it feels like the that platform sort of uh, it, it manages itself in a way that doesn't feel as icky. Um, but it, but there's a, a vision and a sort of a goal behind it instead of just like, well, I need to, I need to grow this audience. I need to grow my Twitter following. So I'm attractive right. to agents. And it's just like, it, it got me wasting a lot of time doing that yes. instead of focusing on the work. And right. I feel like I wasted my thirties doing that. <laughs> yeah. You can chase your own tail. Um, yeah. I even have close colleagues who chase their own tail in this way. And I try to like hint that they're doing that, but it doesn't work because there's just this <laughs> pressure. People feel like they're yeah. not doing what they need to do, but it, it definitely comes back to the work. You've got to be producing work. There's people 
want to follow follow you because of the work. So the work can come out in any different in many different ways. And the work itself can be social media posts. Not that I recommend that, um, but you've got to be producing work. That's number one. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been experimenting this this year in particular, and it's it's not going to be like a one year experiment. It's going to be like several because uh, there's only so many places of prominence you can you can publish. Uh, but my my main goal is to try to get published in as many semi visible to highly visible things. And then in my tagline is going to be primarily go to my website, sign up for my monthly newsletter. And and that's how I'm sort starting to gauge it is like, okay, I want to try to do an end around around yeah. social media. And then as a result, I'm sure that that number is going to grow. And then I can kind of pop things over there and make people you know, serve that audience. But the best, more savory way is to, like you just said, do work, you know, have a body yeah. of work. And then that snowballs itself because like you're here if you're in Writer's Digest or Brevity or on your blog. And then you're like, oh, this person is they're not just trying to they're, they're trying to do work of, of service to the community. And they're, right. you know, they, with a body of work, you, you can show you have skill and stuff to offer. And then your platform will build. But I think a lot of people just find the the. And I, I can say this because I'm guilty of it was, uh, you know, the Pez dispenser nature of uh, and the <laughs> slot machine nature of social yes. media. It feels like work, but it isn't. Whereas you should be putting right. your efforts into actual work, like you said. Right. I have one short, inspiring story, I hope. This is my husband uh, who has a monthly podcast, although it's on hiatus right now because of the move. Mm -hmm. um, and he has a very small, devoted audience. But because he now has, I think he's been doing it for about two years now, you know, every new episode he puts out is, is meaningful, even if it has a small audience at first, because it's just that things have a long life on the internet. There are always new people finding the old stuff that he did. And he's written some posts at his site that are complimentary to his podcast. One of them was written back in 2015. I actually helped him with the titling of it. And like, you know, just from an SEO perspective, search engine optimization, I wanted to make sure it had the best possible foundation. And he knew exactly, you know, where to share it, like on Facebook or whatever, so that the right people would see it. And that post still brings him like 500 visits a day to his website, despite being seven years old. And he mm. spent hours on that post like he it was painstaking he's a slow writer anyway but he just wanted it to be perfect and he was rewarded he's still rewarded today so i i do i know that it sometimes is a little bit naive to say quality will win out quality will win out if you have um also paid attention to the environment in which you're putting the content into. <laughs> so, you know, making sure that it's headlined appropriately, sharing it in the right places. Um, yeah. But spending the time on the work will reward you in the end. I, I have to believe that as an optimist. What's the subject matter of his piece in his podcast? His podcast is uh, discovering new music. Oh, cool. Um, and then the, the post was about his very weird little method of identifying a song if Shazam or, you know, a similar app can't identify it. What do you do? Like something you recorded back in the 1980s on a cassette. <laughs> yeah. 
that sort of thing, which I realize I'm probably speaking to a small, small group of people at this like point. Cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's cool. I, the the thing is, those niche little things like that are are the. I don't know. Sometimes it's antithetical to think we already kind of talked about it, but mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of people, I think they want to be, I want to appeal to the greatest possible audience. And it's like, when you appeal to all that, you're appealing to nobody. Right. It's like, find, I use this example all the time. It's just, you know, just, you don't talk about, you know, weightlifting. You talk about, you know, vegan bodybuilders and then yes. you, now you're getting really narrow, but through that, you, there is a community there. And then some often from that, once you go that small, it does start to sort of balloon out from there to some more evergreen yes. areas and audiences that are a little beyond, but you can't go, you can't just you know, haphazardly grow it, that cast it out into the world and then hope to get an audience that way. It's like the way you get big is by going so small and then from there, well, at least it'll spread horizontally. Yes. Couldn't agree more. Now, as uh, I, I, I had, I had primed, primed the pump, I hadn't asked this question in a long time of people of like the bookshelf for the end of the world. or <laughs> I, I've called it the, the, the oh, oh, bookshelf for the apocalypse or library for the end of the world. And, you know, these kind of three to five books that you can't live without. Or, you know, if you're in a post-apocalyptic zombie <laughs> landscape, it's like, you know, I'm going I'm still in my backpack. I'm going to pack these books because uh, I need that kind of nourishment. So what are some of those titles for you, Jane? Well, there's basically anything by Alan DeBotton is something that I would put in that bag. It's really hard for me to choose from any specific, like a specific title, but the ones that are most lodged in my, my memory that I keep recommending are his first novel, which uh, is called On Love, uh, which has this wonderful term or concept in it called romantic terrorism, which <laughs> highly recommend. He, for those who don't know him, he's more well-known in the UK, but he writes both novels and nonfiction, mostly nonfiction, and he runs something called The School of Life. One of his most popular articles, I think, was published by the New York Times about why you will marry the wrong person. So that kind of gives you a flavor of what he's like. Very realist, but trying to help you lead a better life by by recognizing that you will likely be disappointed in your endeavors, whether that's marriage, work, or something else. Um, there, Very just like bleak. A, yes, there's a real stoicism about him that I just love he's just real he's not trying to sugarcoat anything but there's still some hope there he's one of those writers where if you you read even just a couple sentences of what he's written you're like he's finally expressed what's been in my heart that i couldn't put into words he's just wonderful i can't say enough wonderful things about him <laughs> nice and uh of course as i bring these conversations down for a landing i always like to ask uh guests for recommendations for the listeners out there i have to i have to now preface that <laughs> poor gloria lou i had her on i'm like uh I'm like i'm asking for a you know recommendation and she she started by recommending something to me and i was like oh i'm i'm sorry i mean like for the listeners i'm like that would be such a 
like what a dick move to end my own show by inviting you on I'm like hey, i need a recommendation of some kind and it was like i realized that i wasn't i i it totally wasn't uh prefacing the question properly and and she caught it and i was like oh damn uh, but yes for the listeners like i always say it could be a pair of socks a brand of coffee or uh or or or, or an app on your phone so uh yeah so jane for you what would you re- recommend for the listeners well, this uh, this is probably going to be very revealing, but uh, a Blue Apron meal kit subscription has been like, that has maybe improved my quality of life more than just about anything else in the last few years, uh, especially during the pandemic um, when not you know, it was, it could be very uncomfortable to go grocery shopping. Yeah. So for those who don't know what blue apron is or what meal kit services is, you essentially select um, the meals that you want to cook that week. And then they ship you the ingredients. It's for two people or four people, depending. Um, And then it it eliminates the question of what's for dinner. I like, it's, you know, how it was it Obama who always already had his suits picked out for him or something. So he didn't have to decide what to wear in the morning. And it just took away that extra calculation yeah that that's what blue apron is for me i don't have to think about what i'm cooking for dinner it is yeah. so freeing oh yeah last week when i was talking to leah flickinger she was um <laughs> uh hello fresh was her thing it's like okay, the same yeah. it's same thing it's like this it takes the decision fatigue yes. out of the way i think steve jobs that's why he wore black turtleneck and jeans usually yep. I, I don't have to think about it it's yep. just I'm wearing this. I can put a decision chiclet somewhere else, <laughs> right. like that. But yeah, anything that oh, I know my wife and I we um, every week, uh, you know, we we kind of like fret over the grocery list, and it's just mm-hmm. like, what are we gonna make this week? All right, can we yep. get two or three days out of that? And it's but so I can totally see the value of just like, yep, I'm gonna we're just gonna check a few boxes here, and there you go. Yep. Yeah, I hope if they ever go out of business, God help me. I guess there's HelloFresh and there's others, so I'll keep going to the next one. Sweet. And, and do you have any uh, anything you're excited about, like coming up in the next you know few months? I know these podcasts are more evergreen, but there are topical things worth mentioning. So, do you have anything coming up you want to kind of promote? Well, 2022 is the year I go back to in-person speaking in full force. So I've got a whole bunch of events coming up that I'm very excited about nice. being back in the room with writers. I'll be at Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs at the end of the month at the Writers Digest annual conference in New York City, um, Midwest Writers Workshop in Muncie, Indiana, the Women's Fiction uh, Association in Alexandria, and there's a whole list of my site. But yeah, that's what I'm really looking forward to. Awesome. Well, Jane, uh, as always, what a pleasure to talk to you and just kind of kind of just talk about what it is to be in this morass. So thanks for thanks for the time uh, and coming on in short notice and uh, in talking shop. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thank you, Brendan. Did we do it again? Did it happen again? We, we made it. We got to the end. Thanks to Jane. She came on the show at the last minute. It's amazing. It's great. Love talking to her. We don't talk enough, if you ask my opinion. This is my show, so my opinion matters. Yeah. Of late, I've had a real hard time pinning guests down. Like, I read their books, and they've expressed interest in coming on the show. Or if not interest, they have at least uh, softly committed. And then they ghost. So what I've done is I've quote-unquote wasted a week of my time reading a book for a guest who won't be on the show. 
uh, and it takes me a week to read a book. I, I'm, I'm, I'm human, okay? Uh, it's endlessly frustrating for your humble podcast host, so we'll see what happens. We'll see what's in store. That's tension, baby. Subscribe to the show so you don't even have to think about it. We're everywhere, seeing efforts. And if you have a moment, leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. I enrolled in this Advercast thing through Libsyn, that's my podcast host, where brands can pitch to be on the podcast or they can just say like, oh, we're just going to buy ads on there for a few bucks. So I got a ping from, of all things, uh, Athletic Greens. It's weird. I'm surprised they reached out. It's obviously I'm not a, like an athletic. Uh, this isn't a performance-based podcast, athletic performance-based podcast. I've heard of them. They used to be on Tim Ferriss's podcast all the time. Um, I, I'm thinking of accepting the ad read so I can make a little scratch, uh, but it might disrupt the usual flow of things. But if nobody uses the promo code, uh, that means that they're like, ah, this show's not worth it, and they're going to bail. Also, I might I might still take it, but put the ad-free version of the show up on the Patreon page. So if you don't want ads, if it becomes a more of a regular thing, you can always consider joining that group of rogues and weirdos. Am I right, guys? And there you'll have it. No, No ads at all. Just an MP3 file. With me and the guest in your usual weird rumblings and rantings. So even if you're a $2 patron, ad-free, $24 a year and you're helping the podcast for the price of a cliff Bar, you can really help out this show. I mean, you do it by listening and downloading. That's a way of purchasing. That's a way of enrolling. But if you want to put eight quarters of the CNF into the CNF pod collection plate, you'll get massive shout outs. The most massive. So that's gonna be it. That's it for now. All right. So party on CNFers. And if you can't do interview, see you.